As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business app. Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley. He's been making a lot of warnings recently. The latest saying that risks are building for U.S. consumer stocks, rating, quote, this price action is picking up on slowing consumer spend, student loan repayments resuming, rising delinquencies in certain household cohorts, higher gas prices, and weakening data in the housing sector, the quinfecta of threats, or however many you want to say that. Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley joining us now. Mike, how much pushback? We talked about this before. Do you you still get the same degree of pushback that you did a month ago? Or are more people listening and saying, wait a second, in the anecdotal data, this is starting to make sense? Yeah, look, I mean, I think the the question for investors is always price. Uh, I mean, we're we're in a a late cycle environment. Let me just set the table a little bit, right? So we're in a late cycle environment for the last year. And when you're in a late cycle environment, there's a lot of uncertainty, right? I mean, people erroneously called for a recession in the first half of this year. It didn't happen. And now they may be erroneously believing in like this beautiful soft landing with some reacceleration next year. They probably overpriced that in the summer. So what happens is investors get whipped around by price action. And I would say what's happened in the last two months is we are seeing a breakdown again in a lot of, a lot of the stock market. Okay, Yeah, the overall averages are down 4 or 5%, not a big deal. But some of these consumer stocks are really, really struggling. And I think that reflects kind of what we were talking about a minute ago before we get on air, which is that the middle, lower end consumer definitely is out of excess savings. That's starting to bleed a little bit into the higher end now as well. We have the student loan moratorium. And I just think it's that's the wild card. That is the risk for the fourth quarter is can the consumer continue to surprise on the upside? Can you see some of these retail and consumer facing stocks, these small cap stocks get blown out, have their valuations completely decimated and the rest of the market chug along and no one noticed because the Magnificent Seven keep heralding all of the cautious votes of, of confidence from a lot of the consumers that see them as cash cows in perpetuity. Well, it can continue if you don't have that hard landing. Okay, if you have a hard landing, then even the, the big winners will feel that, right? And I think that's what the, the market's betting on. The market's betting there is no recession. And we talked, you know, the bond market, is that signaling, you know, greater strength or is that signaling that maybe the bond market's pushing back on the fiscal, you know, kind of spending? I think it's a little bit of both. And if we don't have a hard landing, then the the big names are probably going to continue to lead because they have scale and they have better balance sheets. Let's go back to Graham Dodd and Cottle 101. Mike Wilson, how can you be as cautious as you've been and not have a massive cash position? What is your cash position? How invested are you within your caution? 
Yeah, I mean, we're we're basically 95% invested. You know, we're like 5% underweight equities. And we, you know, we've talked about this before. We never go 100% cash. Yeah, but the financial media does. It of makes course. for great theater. Of course. Now, what we can do, Tom, is we can be positioned more defensively within our equity exposure, which is what we've done, right? So we're skewed more towards kind of defensive growth, you know, late cycle cyclicals <clears throat> as opposed to the, we're not grabbing for right. beta. We're not grabbing for small caps. We're not grabbing for <clears throat> the, the stuff that's really kind of vulnerable if right. things go sideways. Okay, you're with James Gorman. He's saying, Mike, I don't care about any of this blather. Just tell me about the damn banks. I've been <laughs> remiss on this. Yeah. Keith Briette Index, you and I know it. We love it. And the answer is it's a grim chart. You go back to pre-California, pre-idiocy out there with one, you know, you know the game that they went through. It's one of the bearish charts I've seen in years. When do you know to load the boat on banks? Well, look, it's the same story as the broader market, Tom. The, the bigger getting bigger, there's, there's concentration you know, in the winners again. It's, it's like the higher quality banks are performing So are better. you long Apple? Well, I mean, we are in many portfolios, obviously, because it's such a big part of the index. But Apple's a, another category of stock where people are paying up for the quality of the balance right. sheet, the lack of need for financing. But the banks are representative of the broader market, okay? The higher quality banks right. are outperforming the lower quality banks. That's just, that's just right. where we are for everything. Lisa Shallot emails in. She says, ask Mike Wilson with his easy day job. She's got the real <laughs> job managing money. Do you buy an R squared tight to the S&P 500, or if I'm active managed, do I want to be idiosyncratic? Who did we talk to in London? Kathy, Kathy. It said who, what? Kathy Wood Ark. Oh, Kathy Wood. Uh, Kathy Wood Ark. I mean, do I want to buy an R squared tight to S&P 500, or do I want to get more idiosyncratic? You want to be more idiosyncratic for sure this whole year, right? I mean, even though the S&P is outperformed, it's been 10 stocks. That's idiosyncratic. I mean, if you pick those 10 stocks, you did really, really well. If you pick the, you know, if you pick the other 493, you didn't do very well. So it's very, it's been, the dispersion is really, really high, and it makes sense. Right now, the market's paying up for what I would call operational efficiency, cost leaders. It's paying up for good balance sheets. It's paying up for scale, okay? Will that change? Can we broaden out to the lower end of the market? If the market starts to believe that not only do we avoid a recession, but there's a reacceleration. That's what we need to see. That's what the market's trying to figure out. Hard landing, reacceleration. This purgatory land is we're just going to kind of slot back and forth and the market's going to continue to gravitate to the lifeboats. What does it mean to be defensive? And I keep asking this hmm. because some people say it's tech stocks. Some people say right. it's uh, consumer staples. What do you say? Well, I think it's both. I think, I mean, obviously the market uh, this year has voted with its feet saying they want to buy large cap growth stocks, not just tech, but growth stocks with good balance sheets that have scale. And I will just want to, I want to point something out that's really important uh, for, for these seven or eight stocks this year. Now, X1 or 2, most of the earnings recovery for these stocks has been a result of cost cutting, right? They all they got over their skis on too much spending last year. They reined that in, and so they've kind of manufactured an earnings recovery. If they don't see top-line reacceleration, this is where we're starting to see a separation now, even in those seven. And I think that's going to be another story for the fourth quarter and, and next year's. The market wants revenue growth, not just cost-cutting stories. What we're talking about right now is the bottom line. We're not talking about the rates picture and what that does overall to some sort of macro call on equities. Bank of America strategist came out today and said, do rates matter for stocks? And if so, it's not priced. Do you agree? Well, for some, once again, for some stocks, it's mattered a ton, right? I mean, I, I just think, look, we said this at the beginning of the year, this is the most difficult part of the economic cycle. Mm -hmm. When you are late, we know we're late cycle for one reason, because we got full employment. So you can't argue we're mid-cycle or early cycle. That's silly. What you can argue is that the late cycle period can persist for a lot longer than people expected, and that's what's going on. 
Rates are the one wild card. The rates have really surprised everybody, bond, bond investors and stock investors. Normally in a late cycle environment, rates come down. Why? Because the Fed's done. As you know, well know, this cycle is unique. That's the tricky part of this cycle because the Fed can't be proactive right. in cutting rates ahead of the recession. So we're just going to ride this until basically you run out of gas. And that could be another year. Right. We, don't know the, we don't know the answer to that yet. I mean, I, I find it absolutely fascinating here. Let me, I want to touch on this uh, through the next number of minutes, Mike Wilson. Mike Wilson and Morgan Stanley with us, uh, folks. Dovetail your revenue line, your animal spirit in the equity market with Zentner's, Ellen Zentner's nominal GDP. Yeah. Bring it in real GDP. Who knows yeah. what disinflation is? Even Jim Karen doesn't have it. Karen doesn't have a clue. But the answer is model out nominal GDP and how it affects your revenue line. So this is really interesting. This is where Ellen and I are, are kind of aligned. I mean, I think we're the only bank on the street where we called for a soft landing and an earnings recession. Both turned out to be true. So why is that? Well, because revenue growth and pricing has been actually not as good as the the, the sort of pricing and the, the inflation numbers in the government statistics. Now, Ellen is, I would say, far from excited about economic growth. I mean, she's not calling for recession, right, right. but she's looking for basically 1% GDP growth, real GDP growth. 3.84% nominal. Nominal, exactly. And so, you know, 3 to 4% nominal GDP growth, I mean, could that lead to 3 to 5% revenue growth? Maybe. Here's the risk. Um, the economy is not, the, is not company, what companies see. What companies are seeing in pricing is very, very different than what the economic statistics will tell you. Very similar to 2021, when companies were getting 20% price, when CPI and core CPI were saying 6, mm -hmm. 7, 8. So now if you have CPI 3, 4, you actually have companies seeing deflation. Mike Wilson uh, with us here. Jonathan Farrow staying in London in conversation with the former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Gordon Brown, Mohammed El Arian of the University of Cambridge, and the Nobel Prize winning economist Michael Spence of New York University. The book is Permacrisis, A Plan to Fix a Fractured World, Brown, El Arian, and Spence on AI and Crisis to Manage in the Future. Here is Professor Spence. When Gen AI came along, and I saw its sort of multi-domain capability, the fact that you can use it with no technical training, just a little bit of a, you know, practice, you, you know, creating prompts, and its applicability pretty much everywhere, I thought, you know, even though it's early days, and we're in a period of exploration and experimentation, I, I think it's a reasonable forecast that this tool is an important part of a future productivity surge, and if it comes, it'll make it a lot easier to do inclusive growth patterns because it won't be a zero-sum game. It'll be easier to invest multi-trillions of dollars in the energy transition. It's going to be terribly difficult to get that done with fiscal space declining, the rising debt levels and rising interest rates. So that's why we spend a fair amount of time. It's not that the growth by itself is, is the only thing. It's that it enables an awful lot of what we want to accomplish. Yeah, I think we're heading for a low growth decade if we don't have the productivity surge that AI can give us. 
And I think what Mike is pointing out is it can transform a whole range of industries. You'll never see the accountancy or legal or even medical professions or teaching profession be the same again if AI has the impact that I think and Mike thinks it will have. But equally, we've got to have that productivity surge because without that, the inflation, the fiscal space being narrowed, the debt that we're we're, we're running, uh, and of course the supply side shocks and constraints that are in existence mean that as things stand, we're heading for a low growth decade. AI is the way forward uh, to take us out of growth. And I think Mohammed agrees with that. No, totally. And it's critical because we have a debt issue um, that has to be resolved. We have an inequality issue. We need resources for critical transitions. So, you know, the notion as Mike and Gordon correctly said that higher, more inclusive growth and more sustainable growth is a massive enabler to deal with all these other problems. All three of you understand the risks involved though. If globalization hollowed out manufacturing bases domestically in places like America, Mm. in the United Kingdom to some extent as well, and I'm Mm. asking the question, why wouldn't AI do the same thing to services? My question, if I'm a member, a citizen, someone who's got to vote, is why would I trust the same people all over again? (laughs) Who should I trust to manage that transition, that integration of those technologies? That's what my uh, children say, my young uh, teenagers say, uh, you guys have messed it up. And it is true that we tried uh, to create a more inclusive uh, uh, system. Uh, We tried to deal with the problems of the environment, but we couldn't get the agreement that we needed. And we tried to have more equity and better, better jobs. But I do think when I talk to young people, they want to see this change. Uh, you know, the issue is not whether you have change or not now. The, is- the, 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 issue, the issue is what kind of change. And we've got to make that change inclusive. Mike? Agree. I mean, you know, we, uh, Eric Brynjolfsson talked about the Turing trap. You know, the Turing test basically pushes you in the direction of automation. We want to push in policy should be pushing in the direction of augmentation, of giving people powerful tools that make them more productive. So this is the journey we're setting on, but it's not, it's not, I don't think, right to just capitulate and say productivity produces employment problems. It's, it's at least more complicated than that, Jonathan. But, but our global institutions have got to reform to be capable of dealing with this. They're not fit for purpose at the moment. And the IMF has got to be a crisis prevention mechanism to do proper surveillance of the world economy. It can't just be there for crisis resolution. The World Bank has got to become a global public goods bank and deal with the energy transition as well as uh, human, human capital. Uh, the World Trade Organization has got to find a way of diplomacy and negotiation uh, and arbitration working better than it has in the past. And we need a better concept of burden sharing. I mean, I cannot understand why when you have a humanitarian crisis and we have many around the world at the moment, all we seem to be able to do is pass the begging bowl around and hope that someone's going to produce some money. We've got to have a system of burden sharing, whether it's for the environment or whether it's for public health or whether it's for some of the other global public goods we want to do now. If you talk to people around the world, I've just come back from the United Nations, they all want this to happen. So what we need to do is show that this can yield the best results and then create the political will for this to happen. As I'm listening to you, I'm getting the same feeling that I got when I read the book. This makes a lot of sense. And then I end up in the same place. Is there any evidence that people are willing to vote for it? Now, you say it's incredibly popular. You go around, you speak to people, (laughs) and they're convinced by it. I don't see any evidence from recent general elections that anyone wants this vision that the three of you have. I think people want hope. I I think the, the lesson of COVID and of the energy and food crisis and people's reaction to the war in Ukraine is that things have got to be better than this. And I think uh, those leaders that can show 
that there's a hopeful future. Now, you see Mia Motley in, 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 in the Caribbean producing her plan for global growth. You see now politicians in Africa talking about green, green growth. I do think that there's a movement now that says, look, we cannot have politics just as a negative sport where people are just attacking each other and it's all sort of about uh, sound bites. I, I think people want politicians that can give them hope uh, and that's the next generation. Mohammed? I think he's absolutely right. I mean, there's A, people want hope. B, I think there's a world recognition that the world we're on is unsustainable and it's getting more and more bumpy. And third, we're dealing with a loss of trust. And if we don't directly re-establish trust in our institutions, in our policy making, in global cooperation, things are going to get worse. I think the reason why we wanted to put this down is hoping to start a conversation on a set of steps. And we keep on saying there is no silver bullet. This is not a big bang, you do something tomorrow and then everything's fine. This is building a foundation that turns vicious cycles into virtuous ones. Well, let's take the Federal Reserve as one example. <laughs> You've written about this extensively over the last 18 months. I still remember a conference we did together in the summer of 2021 <coughs> when you warned about what could possibly be coming and how ill-prepared the institution that is the Federal Reserve was for this moment. How do they recover from the mistakes they've made in the last 18 months? to help contribute to the vision the three of you have? So the recovery is starting. I think there's much broader recognition now that there's been five failures. Analysis, transitory inflation, forecasts, consistently too optimistic, action, too late, communication, muddled, and regulation. We, had a, we almost had a big banking crisis um, just six months ago. So I think there's now, there's, there's more understanding and what we propose is a few steps that reduce the chances of that happening. Things that minimize groupthink, things that increase accountability. And without accountability, the independence of the Fed is going to be challenged going forward. So this, the Fed has huge interest in embracing um, the few things we propose in order to, to restore trust in an institution that's absolutely critical and that must have political autonomy. Elarian, Elarian, Brown, and Spence. Permacrisis is about John Farrell, just a wonderful uh, effort there. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Joining us now, Kathy Jones, Chief Fixed Income Strategist here on Higher Yields on the Real Yield. I'm sorry, even at Schwab, uh, Lisa, it's been an adjustment. Yeah, I mean, honestly, right now, people are looking at these yields and saying, can they last? And you were even saying yesterday as you looked at them, why? So why? 
Yeah, I, you know, I do think that we are adjusting to this new world where we have a positive term premium and we have a stronger growth outlook and certainly, you know, higher for longer yields. The question is, you know, what is the end point of all that? And so when we look at it, what we say is, well, the Fed might hold here for a while, but it's very difficult to see why they'd want to go a lot <coughs> higher from here. So inflation is falling. Uh, get a couple of more 0.2% month over month prints in PCE and we'll be at two, two and a quarter on core PCE. So we're almost there on inflation. The economy is slowing down. The housing market is basically frozen. You've got risks in the commercial real estate market that could spread back into banking. I mean, there's a lot of indicators here to suggest that they've done enough. Um, so I'm, I'm curious um, to understand why some of the Fed members are still talking about raising rates even further. Partly because the economic data keeps surprising to the upside. It's part of the reason why we keep hearing from different CEOs, Jamie Dimon, David Solomon, talking about resilience. And they're seeing it, they would see it first if they were seeing it really start to crack. Consumers are still able to spend, albeit not at the levels they previously were. So at what point do you lean into that and say, no, actually, Maybe it's a screaming buy if you take a 10-year yield at 4.5% and, and you're willing to clip the coupon for the next 10 years. But are you really going to see that appreciation with some sort of massive decline in yield, increase in price that people were previously expecting? Yeah, I think that we will see a decline in yield. Uh, obviously, we're not going back to zero or 1% or 2% or whatever, um, but I do think we'll see a decline in yield. So consumers are spending, but they're filing for bankruptcy. You know, that's, that's kind of the, the two-sided issue here. Um, we're seeing a lot of delinquencies on credit cards, on auto loans. We're seeing defaults in the corporate sector. The speculative default rate is starting to pick up. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that higher rates are biting. Um, it takes time to work its way through. The question is, um, you know, does the Fed really want to send it over the edge? or do they want to try for this soft landing? But, you know, we think there's value in fixed income. You don't have to right. go all the way to tens, but we think there's plenty of value in just clipping the coupon here. I mean, you look right. at the ag, you can, you know, look at positive returns going forward because you've got a higher coupon and you don't right. have that much duration risk. Okay, bring up the chart you just put up there. Amy, you nailed it with that 10-year chart. On radio, folks, it's just the 10-year chart in the yield here. I'm gonna get a little fancy here with uh, Kathy Jones because she's a fancy uh, person. I have nice log convexity. I have a beautiful two standard deviation trend and a higher yield. I've got elegancy on my climbing moving averages. I have a trend in place. How do you know when the yield turns and goes lower? I don't see that here. I see higher 10 year yield. Oh, you're right. I mean, I pick, trying to pick the peak is really, really hard. It's, it is in every cycle, and this cycle has been, you know, particularly unusual dynamics because of the pandemic and the fiscal stimulus and, and you know, all the special things that have happened. But I have early. an inertial force in the yield space to higher yields. How do I respond to that? Do I stay wicked short term, money market fund cash and that? Or am I brave, fall on a knife and dive in here or dollar cost average into it? Yeah, we don't fall on knives typically. That's usually not our well, Lizanne advice. Saunders does <laughs> yeah. that. That's equity. Uh, but uh, yeah, we leave that for the equity folks. They can try that. Um, you know, we're dollar cost averaging in. So, you know, we're looking at the ag with a duration of six and a yield of five and a quarter. 
And so mimicking something in that space, having a barbell perhaps uh, to do that, because you do get a lot in cash. You do get a lot in the short end, but you don't want to ride the cycle up and down because you're not getting any of the benefits and you want to lock in some of the income. I mean, you this is a income. huge yeah. opportunity for people investing for income right now. We haven't had this in 15, 20 years. The concern that some people have is that bond vigilantes are getting a little bit stronger. And there are many more of them, and there are many fewer of the international buyers that might step in, say from Japan. How do you respond to that? Are you seeing the mix of buyers change and become more aggressive in their demands? You know, we're still seeing foreign inflows are pretty pretty attractive, um, have pretty steady. So it's, it's hard to parse the numbers because of the way they're reported through different agencies. But um, foreign investment's still pretty strong. So not too worried about that. I think a lot of it is the Fed's pulling back in QT, right? The Fed was our big backstop. And now the Fed's not buying. The Fed's allowing to roll off. And I think that that's one of the drivers of this, you know, this last leg up here is you just don't have them stepping in. And, and that's going to be a factor. That's going to keep rates higher than they would otherwise have been. You know, Kathy, I'm asking for a friend, folks. <clears throat> the Austrian 97 year, I've enjoyed from a 134. I bought it just below that, like 131 to 36. I'm down 72% on a 97-year piece of paper. And on a stochastic basis again, how do you know when that's going to reverse and be the distressed debt buy of all time? When do you go long Austria? You know, Tom, I wish I had the answer to that. I think that um, you're going to... But on a technical basis, we haven't seen this in 17 years. Right. I mean, this is, you know, Lisa has no memory of this. What percentage of Wall Street has no memory of going, okay, when do I go long Austria? That question hasn't been asked for 17 years. Yeah, when, when you go long, super long duration, uh, I think you're gonna have to wait for a pivotal moment such as, you know, such as a, a yeah. big recession or some sort of crisis. Kathy, that was such a diplomatic way of answering a question where Tom is basically like, please, let me offload my Austrian piece, finally cash out. That's essentially well, what you're saying. Yeah, that, no, it's not potentially what I'm saying. Folks, this is the dumbest investment I've ever made. I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding Crushing here. It. But Lisa, this brings up what Kathy and Lizanne have to deal with every day. These are markets that what percentage of the public in their adult lives have never even listen to this surveillance dialogue. And I take that a step further. The concept of distressed debt investing probably wasn't thinking about sovereign debt from top-rated governments. And suddenly we are thinking no. about top-rated debt from sovereign governments because that's the kind of yield that you're getting. Kathy Jones, thank you for briefing me on the Austrian uh, piece. Right now, on presidents in history across the American fabric, Elaine Cummack joins us right now to say she's senior fellow at Brookings, former Clinton administration official, doesn't touch upon her wonderful books, which are really richly researched and written on the foibles of our presidents. Elaine, thank you so much for joining us. You are, you know, I think of you and Michael Bachelos are the two I want to talk to this morning. What is the significance of a president on a picket line? Harry Truman wouldn't have done that. Right, right. I think it's a big deal, and it's, a, it's probably long overdue. You know, the American labor movement has gotten weaker and weaker since Harry, the days of Harry Truman. In fact, it used to be that 33% of the American labor force was unionized. It's now down to 19%. And I mean, 9%, sorry, of the industrial unions 
and a little bit more of the government unions. Um, and at the same time, what we've had is this enormous ballooning in executive pay. There was going to be a come to Jesus moment with this. And I think now is the come to Jesus moment where the president of the United States is saying, if a company does so well that right. you are paying executives in the hundreds of millions of dollars, you got to do something for the workers. Who has the voice of Coolidge, Hubert Heaver and the rest of them? Who has the voice of business across America? Oh, I think that the I think the president is very concerned about business across America. There's no doubt about it. And the old Republican Party, okay, the traditional Republican Party used to be the party concerned with business across America. Now this Republican Party is off in la-la land and can't even get a budget, right? Can't even keep the government open. So you've, you've sort of lost that balance we used to have between the party of workers and the party of owners. And now we're, we're at a crisis point in both situations. Elaine, how complicated is this issue at a time where the Democrats have been trying to transition away from fossil fuels and lean into electric vehicles at a time when a lot of the electric vehicle battery manufacturers do not have unions? And this is part of what spurred a lot of the discontent among the unions. How confused is the messaging right now? Well, it's pretty confusing and it's pretty it's pretty difficult, but it is the price of progress. Right. I mean, we are going to move away from fossil fuels. We are moving to electric vehicles. You see more and more of them on the road here on the East Coast between Washington and Boston, where I travel a lot. Um, there's a ton of EV charging stations at all the rest stops. So it's it's coming. And I think the unions need to cope with that and try to organize as much as they can. But the bottom line is we're out of whack here. I mean, we're seriously out of whack in terms of worker pay versus CEO pay. That's what's driving this. And that is why, by the way, the American public is on the side of the UAW and not on the side of business in this situation. Is this enough of a headwind or rather a tailwind for President Biden to get him over a hurdle that is increasingly big in terms of popularity, which is cost of living, which is his age, which is a question around some of these kind of confused uh, messages coming out supporting labor, but also having the energy policy that kind of goes against some of what he's talking about? Well, it's good. that's a great question. And what you have to remember is presidential elections are not about the whole country. It's about certain states, winning certain states. This is going to be a big deal, a big effing deal, as the president himself says, in those states that are swing states. It's going to be important in Michigan, important in Wisconsin, important in a lot right. of those Midwest industrial states. And I think it's going to be huge in terms of his reelection. For our Republican and Democrat listeners and viewers, Elaine Kamark, does a president need a new vice president? There's such a tradition, second term, to recharge, reinvigorate, and figure out the politics of the next vice president. What's, president, what's, what's he do with the present vice president as he moves forward? I think she stays exactly in place. And one of the things that's missing in all the discussion about Kamala is, guess what? She does really well among young voters, voters under the age of 45. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that is always forgotten in these discussions is that 
in by the time of this election, people under 45 are going to be practically 50 percent of the electorate. Wow. By, 20, by 2028, people who are today under 45 will be 54 percent of the electorate. Wow. There is a new generation going taking place here, and they are a different generation than us baby boomers and the president's silent generation. And their politics are different. And guess what? They like Kamala Harris. They're happy that she's there. And um, I don't, that's why I don't think you're going to see any movement at all. There is a, a, a debate between Gavin Newsom, governor of California, coming up uh, with Ron DeSantis of Florida, a very unusual kind of debate at a time where Gavin Newsom is not running. Do you think that it would be a good thing if there were some other options at a time when a lot of voters are very concerned about Joe Biden's age and have said so in polls? Well, they do say so in polls, but guess what? They don't vote that way. They said so in polls in 2022. They voted for Democrats. Every special election in 2023 has seen a growth in the Democratic vote. So I think, yes, people are concerned about Biden's age. You have to be. You have to be concerned about Trump's age, too. He's not a spring chicken. He looks like a walking heart attack. OK, you got to be concerned about age. But the fact of the matter is that is not related to votes. And they're two separate decisions that the electorate is making. Uh, Elaine, thank you. So when's the next book out, Elaine, quickly? The next book is probably out in November, and it's about disinformation in American politics. Elaine, thank you so much. Elaine Kamak, whether you're Republican or Democrat, she speaks her mind. And every time she's on the show, folks, I learn something. I had no idea the preponderance of people under 45 years old in America. It speaks to the anger that a lot of people yeah. have that there isn't a representation that matches that at a time where the two front runners for I'm the presidency stunned. are of a different generation. It's great when she's on. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Sheila Johnson, BET co-founder, she's author of Walk Through Fire, a memoir of picking herself up from her childhood, getting it done, getting totally slammed by a divorce, and keeping it uh, going. She's, of course, done better than good over the years in Washington, as Mike McKee and I were talking about, a modest acquaintance with the ice hockey capitals, with women's basketball, and the source. And she has written an exceptionally terse must-read and I love how you end it. Nice, granola guy's out in Utah, and you show up to pick up Robert Redford in a Humvee? Absolutely, yeah. And I've, he gave you a lecture. Oh, you know, I got to know him because I was on the board of Sundance. Yeah. And I've admired everything that he's done for the film industry. 
And uh, we just got to know each other, and he came all the way to Middleburg, Virginia, as I was getting ready to start construction, looked down on the town, and he says, you got to put a film festival here. We are now into our 11th year. Of doing that. And yes. I, I like that you showed up at a Humvee, which speaks volumes about Sheila Johnson. <laughs> I want to go back to the, the emotion of the beginning of the book, which people, you know, you didn't come out of some fancy prep school and got it going with the first million or two million. No. Take us before the first million. What was the catalyst to pick the pieces up from your childhood? Well, first of all, it was a learning area where I... Um, for the first time in my life, I had to grow up very fast at the age of 16. My father suddenly left. We were a middle-class family, uh, first African-American, not the first, but one of eight African-American neurosurgeons in the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we had some sort of status in society. And for him to suddenly leave, it just left my mother broke. Women did not have the wherewithal right. to have our own bank accounts or anything. So that is stuck with me forever. And that has been the impetus in which I have right. decided to lead my life and take charge of it. What people want to know from you, I'm going to slam it forward to the present. Lisa's got a bunch of uh, insight as well. What do you think of the expression of our culture war now is witnessed by a corporate effort of diversity which seems to stumble on itself, witness Hollywood and mistakes made? or just the general debate over this word woke. You're about as anti-woke as I've ever seen. How do you synthesize that? Well, um, I don't quite understand woke. I just know hard work is at the bottom of everything I do. My value systems are there, and it's really, really important that I continue to push on and not really you know, focus so much on race, but I am very aware of it and the pitfalls but I just try to fight through it, and I deal with the people that want to challenge me on it. What do you make of some of the recent striking activity, particularly with Hollywood, given your intimacy with that, at a time where people are trying to take charge of their life and don't know what the future landscape will look like with artificial intelligence and streaming and don't have those guarantees? Do you think that there are legitimate issues that are not being dealt with responsibly and in the public eye from some of these companies? Yeah, I think what's happening is it's all media is transitioning so fast and even in the film industry. And I know people in the film industry, they're, they're seriously concerned about what their future is gonna look like. I mean, I deal with the film festival, I have a LA Film Advisory Board, uh -huh. and they're talking to me all the time about, are we gonna get films this year? Are there still films being shot? Are there in the can? But I think um, this is something that we've got to watch and we've got to be careful about because the landscape is changing quickly. You've got these great vignettes. I want to take a vignette and take it to business as well. Mm -hmm. You're sitting there one day, you're over your sink of coffee, you know, you're hanging out. You've probably been, you know, you're going, Ben's Chili Bowl, U Street lunch. I think we can do that. Yeah. And Whitney Houston wanders in. What's it like when Whitney Houston comes in the door? Well, first of all, she's one of the most beautiful women I'd ever seen. She's very thin very talented, but I also could just sense a little bit troubled. But um, I admired her, she's a great talent. And yeah. you know, that was some of the fun things about BET. You would see all these celebrities that you've heard about, talked about, right. and they're coming into your studio. So I mean, we, we really were the core of black media back oh, then. Oh, you were the core of it. And you know, like you said, you wanted to be Ebony Magazine, really high-end and academic. 
and then boom, it all changed, and it, you know, in some ways it blew up in and, and, and that. But I, I got to drag it forward now. Sheila Johnson, another cup of coffee, except it's a fancy cup at the Sunset Tower Hotel. It's you and Mr. Iger. What's your advice to the modern train wreck known as Disney? Oh, my goodness. That's something I really can't answer, but I will tell you, Disney has always been a force. It's a force in media, in entertainment, and I'm just terrified about what's going on in Florida right now. I really am. Well, if you push it forward from your BET experience, uh-huh. would you be able to found that company today in today's world? You know, this question has been asked of me many times. I'm really concerned about where BET is now. I right. think we need to look at it. Um, I have not been happy with it for years and years and years. There's not enough balanced programming. And I just think that the landscape and the racial landscape of what African Americans are watching is changing. And I just think that we have got such a broad perspective of people out there that want something different, especially this younger generation. So we need to reevaluate what are the goals of black media and what what are the answers? What is it out there that we need to answer? The heart and soul of your voice. We've got to wrap it up here, Sheila, in celebration mm-hmm. of Walk Through Fire. But the heart and soul of your work is to find a middle ground. And in these culture wars, you know, I, I was weaned on Edmund Burke, senator from Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. This is a long time ago. How do we get a fractured America back to a middle ground? Well, I think what we're doing... At- through the salamander through my company is we're bringing in programming i've kind of taken it from bet and into the hospitality business with the film festival also i've been able to check the box on the diversity issues where i bring in 41 of the top black chefs from all over the country to really celebrate food from the african diaspora we talk about these issues in panel discussions i'm doing it in a fun way bringing the american ballet theater in I like to continue the entertainment part of it into my hospitality company. And that's where we're answering a lot of the questions. Sheila, thank you so much for joining us today. Sheila Johnson, of course, of BET, Walk Through Fire, memoir of love, loss, and triumph. Deeply personal and courageous uh, book as well. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.